following audio is from the Anglican Church, Caroline Springs. For more information about the church, go to taccs.org.au. This morning we are continuing our series in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're up to chapter 2. We did chapter 1 last week and it was a bit of a whirlwind introduction slash journey through the first chapter. Um, and uh, the whole way I was fighting to, to get the thing done in 45 minutes and I failed, alright? So uh, let's try again. Let's try again. Um, Ecclesiastes is, uh, is an ancient book, an ancient book of wisdom, comes out of the uh, wisdom literature of the Old Testament, one of five books that carry that uh, title or that category or that genre. And um, if you want to hear a little bit more about the uh, background to the book and you weren't here last week, either get the audio um, off our website or come again uh, next week and we'll have a printed guide for the series with a lot of the context and historical background and so on. So that being said, I just want to get into chapter 2, verse 1 to 11 this morning. It'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, it'll also be in the Bibles uh, that, that are somewhere near you. If you don't have a Bible, then you should pick one up. Because I want us to walk through this verse by verse, and I want you to see, um, I want you to see what I'm uh, seeing from God's word as we go together. If you don't have a Bible this morning, take that one with you. Okay, that's our gift. So this morning, I want to talk about, or, or at least the Bible uh, in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter two is going to talk about um, three main things. I'm going to talk about pleasures and possessions. And plaudits, that's called alliteration, I do that quite a lot, alright, so, um, so, uh, sorry, I was just enjoying that myself for a little bit there, I was just enjoying that alliteration, pleasures, possessions, and plaudits, pleasures, possessions, and plaudits, so what we're going to talk about is pleasures, not just sexual pleasures, but uh, that for sure, but also pleasures that we get from wine and food and company and everything else. We're going to talk about possessions, you all know what they are, um, and we're going to talk about plaudits, from which we get the word applause, uh, so we're going to talk about accomplishments, things that we do in order to get people to take notice of us. Those three things are what Solomon is, Solomon is going to introduce us to this morning, um, and, uh, and we're going to talk about uh, God's view, or how to have a Christian view of those three things, pleasures, possessions, plaudits, alliteration. All right, starting in verse 1. Love you guys. All right, starting in verse 1. Verse number 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. Come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. So as we open up this uh, topic of pleasure and, and possessions and plaudits, uh, what I want to do is bring in an expert. Right? I've got some experience in these things, but I wanted to get an expert in who, who would be considered a world authority on these three things, pleasures, possessions, and plaudits. And so I want to bring in Hugh Hefner. Hugh Hefner, uh, as uh, many of you are pretending not to know, um, is the uh, is the magazine magnate, the 
chief editor and founder of Playboy magazine. What? Yeah, Playboy magazine, all right? Um, born in 1926. Um, in 1953, he launched Playboy magazine. 1971, it went to become a public company and it was selling, selling 7 million copies, all right? And this is, this is before Amazon could just send it to your house or before you could download it from your phone, all right? This is where you actually had to get, walk into a store and go through the ignominy of buying a physical copy. And even then, there's 7 million copies going, all right? So, so this guy is a successful entrepreneurial man, but he doesn't just start Playboy magazine, he lives Playboy magazine, all right? So um, men still trying really hard to look confused, all right? So um, here's, a few, here's a few things that Hugh Hefner said in... Uh, <laughs> That's all right. You can, you can play that game. Um, it, this is in The Guardian on the 21st of November, 2009. They did a little interview with Hugh Hefner, and uh, this will just be a little intro to you. First of all, I asked him, uh, when were you happiest? And his reply was, now I just passed my 83rd birthday, and I look back on a life well lived. A life well lived exactly what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about, exactly what the wisdom literature of the Bible is about, how to live a good life, how to come to the end of your days, how to come to your 83rd birthday and say, I've lived a good life, a life well lived. Next question, property aside, what's the most expensive thing you've ever bought? So property aside, and there's a lot of that, he's got a McDonnell Douglas DC-9, I think that's a Boeing, like a personal aircraft, about 50 million US for that one, so... Uh, just a little toy. Um, what is your most treasured possession? He says he's rotating round bed. I mean, wow. What would your superpower be? Immortality. Interesting. Very so- Solomonic. Uh, immortality. He wants to live beyond the sun. What is your guiltiest pleasure? My life, probably. He surely said that a few times. That's a little bit predictable. Who would you invite to your dream dinner party? I don't have dinner parties. I eat my dinner in bed. All right? So that's, that's the playboy life. How do you relax? With my girls. When I say my girls, I mean my wife and daughter. He means his playmates who live in the playboy mansion with him. With my girls in bed watching a movie, just having a good time. That's what his life is all about. Playboy lifestyle is about having a good time. In this case, uh, it's with his girls in bed. What do you consider your greatest achievement to have had a positive impact on the social, sexual values of my time? And, and whether it's positive or not, he has had a huge impact on the social, sexual values of his time, on our time. Um, and so he's, he comes towards the end of his life, though he says he's still having sex two or three times a week, um, in that interview, uh, didn't put that up there, but I've just said it anyway, so I may as well have. Um, and and he and he says at the end of his life, he's had a positive impact on the social sexual values of his time, and that is his greatest achievement. So there you have pleasure, you have possessions, and you have plaudits. You have pleasures, possessions, and accomplishments. And this man has many of them, and he is revered because of it. He even has 
a star on the Hollywood um, Walk of Fame, I think it's called. He's got a star on there for television. If you've seen any of his television, don't put your hand up, um, but, but it shouldn't get him a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, right? But he, he, he just the, the, the accumulation of his achievements has made him that famous, that rich, and that much of an icon for people of our generation. And so I thought we could get in Hugh Hefner and he could share a few life lessons with us. But then I realized something. I realized that when it comes to pleasure and possessions and plaudits, Hugh Hefner, he's, he's done a pretty, a pretty big job. He's racked up a few of those things. But there is someone who can make him look like Gandhi by comparison. And so I want to leave Hugh Hefner there with his paltry pleasures, possessions, and plaudits. And I want to introduce someone who's going to put him in the shade. And that, my friends, as you know, is King Solomon. King Solomon, uh, who probably wrote Ecclesiastes, if not inspired the text of Ecclesiastes, might have been an editor's gathering together of a lot of his writings. We don't know exactly but I'm going to refer to him as the author throughout this series. Uh, read more of it in the guide next week when you pick that up. But Solomon, uh, we can see from the biblical um, and historical data, puts Hugh Hefner in the shade. He really does make him look like a small, emaciated Buddhist monk. All right. So when it comes to pleasures and possessions and accomplishments or plaudits, we're going to go to him instead. And he's going to tell us all about it. He's going to tell us all about it. So, to begin with, you guys are a tough crowd this morning, all right? To begin with, we're going to go to uh, pleasure. We're going to ask him, what, what about pleasure? Solomon, what about pleasure? Let's look at verse 1 to 3. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what, is, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. Solomon knows pleasure. If you flick over a couple of pages, you're going to come to Song of Solomon, which is a graphic, graphic account of the sexual life uh, of a man and a woman. Uh, much of it is, is clothed in beautiful um, poetic uh, language, but underneath it all is really just an exposition of sexuality. And, uh, and so he knows a thing or two about pleasure. He had 700 wives. For starters, right? 700 wives, 300 concubines. So 700 wives who he related to as wives, then 300 concubines that lived in the granny flat out the back who were just there for sex. So Hugh Hefner comes along with his four or five playmates, right, living in the Playboy Mansion, 
Solomon has a palace, we're going to see in a minute, that would dwarf the Playboy Mansion and 700 wives along with 300 concubines. The man does not lack for pleasure. He does not lack for body shape or uh, cultural background or level of experience or anything. Right? Anything that you're able to conceive of and then repent of, he's had that. He's had that. He's had that. And so what he does is he, he says to himself, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set a little test. I'm going to do a little experiment here. In verse 1 he says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. So he says, I'm going to do a little experiment here. I'm going to pour all of my resources, all of my women, all of my money, all of my possessions, and I'm going to put them to work to give me pleasure. That's his test. That's his experiment. Now, most of us here this morning, most of the people that we live around, have fantasies about being able to do that test, do that experiment. And they think, and we think in the back of our minds, if we could have this much pleasure, if we could have this many possessions, if we could have this many plaudits and accomplishments, then we would be fulfilled. The, thing, the great thing about Ecclesiastes is we have a man here who has more resources than we'll ever have in our lives who's willing to do the experiment for us. All right? So he does it. He says, I'm just going to go after my pleasure. I'm going to have this hedonist life and put everything into it. So 700 wives. 700 wives. 300 concubines. Wine, he says. Cheer my body with wine. There's an account of the parties that he used to throw. So it was probably during this time when he's running this experiment he just throws these parties. And in 1 Kings, uh, it tells us a little bit about it. I think we've got the text of 1 Kings 4. This tells us for a party, he would throw these parties all week. This is one day's provision for the party. Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal. A core is about 20, uh, 220 litres. 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. All right, so not just the domestic meat, we're getting the imported game meat as well. And that's a lot of meat, right? That's my kind of party. That's my kind of Sunday lunch. Um, and, And that's what he's doing every day. And all of the commentators that I read agreed that's that's about... 15,000 to 20,000 people at those parties. That, that would be provisions for that many people. So I know some of you guys are like me, and you've got a li- you know, you're kind of ashamed, but you're a little bit proud of the partying you did when you were 18, 19, 20 years old, right? Th- those parties that you had, like my, my dad's here, we used to have, we had, he had 13 acres, we used to have parties like that, bonfires and meat and, you know, a, a cow on the fire and booze and, right, all of that. Nothing, nothing, like kindergarten compared to this guy. Fifteen to 20,000 people at these parties. That was one day, one day. It's probably a school night, all right? That's what he's doing because he's, he's like, I'm going to do this experiment. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to test 
pleasure. And so he pours everything into it. 300 concubines of every kind and stripe and persuasion. 700 wives on campus and parties to give you a headache for years. Last night I was sitting on the couch reading my Bible like a good Christian boy while my wife watched The Bachelor. I normally tell Renee when I'm going to talk about her, but I just thought of this. Sorry, sweetheart. Um, yeah, I was reading the Bible, probably in the Greek, all right? Um, just praying for you guys and interceding and probably fasting. And, um, and Renee was watching The Bachelor, and it was the rewind thing, right? So you got about eight hours of The Bachelor catch-up, and um, you guys are still pretending to be confused. You know what Playboy is, right? And you know what The Bachelor is. Just admit it. If you don't, it's a TV show where they get one guy, I think it's Blake, and uh, he gets 24 ladies, I think, and he just gets to go through them, chucking them out as he goes until he finds his one true love. And then, I don't know, the show ends, and they get a new idea deal or something. So, so he's got that situation, and, that's, and, and so we've got that on primetime TV, and it's enough to get my wife to watch uh, for a few hours, so please pray for her. If you are watching The Bachelor, we're going to have a, uh, we're gonna have a, a prayer meeting for you afterwards. Um, but here's the thing, right? I wasn't really really reading my Bible when she was watching this. I was Googling a bit about the show. And it has caused a huge amount of noise on social media with all kinds of people cooing over this guy and about who he is and what he's like. And, you know, for the 15 minutes that he's actually on camera, uh, that would be hard to pull off, right? Um, and, 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 And there's all of this buzz about him. Again, kindergarten stuff. Not only is, is Solomon just so much more of an of a, of a, um, eligible man than this guy, he's probably got a deeper voice than that guy too, right? Bigger muscles, all right? And he's also got not 24 women to choose from, but 1,000 women. 1,000. And so he has all of these pleasures surrounding him all of the time. And the interesting thing is, all through all of that, through the drinking and the sex and the partying, he says, even through all of that, verse 3, my heart was still guiding me with wisdom. So he's still keeping it together. He doesn't do a Charlie Sheen and go off the deep end, right, when he does this, like most people do, and end up drug addicted and a little bit nuts. He does all of this all of the time and his wisdom stays with him. That's God's gift to him and he keeps very lucid, he keeps very wise throughout. And so he's judging this with that wisdom all the way through in order to come to a lucid and uh, precise judgment about pleasures, possessions and plaudits. So let's move on from pleasures. Let's go to possessions. Verse 4 to 8, he says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female servants and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than anyone 
who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines. The delight of the children of man. And so not only does he experience pleasure, and he doesn't experience it in such a way that he's spending all his money trying to get it like a prodigal son. No, he is experiencing all of these things, and there is no lack in his possessions or his wealth. He's just spending out of the profits. He's spending out of the interest. He's not losing anything as he goes. He's still got tons and tons of possessions to his name. Verse 4, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. Again, the book of 1 Kings is the historical account of Solomon's life and it will tell us that he built the temple in order that the people might worship God with 150,000 men laboring. 150,000 men took them seven years to build the temple. Then he built his house and it took 13 years. That's a big house. That's a big house. This is not a Caroline Springs McMansion, like put it up in a few weeks. This is 13 years, 150,000 men just for him. That's his house. Then he builds houses for his wives. That's a lot of houses. Then he builds a sort of living quarters for his concubines so that they can be close by whenever he needs them. All right? Little midnight visit. And so he has an enormous palace. He also, it says uh, in verse 5 and 6, made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. So again, doesn't have a garden, he has a forest. These days we would say this guy is compensating for something, all right? Um, Forest. A forest. To this day, if you go to Jerusalem, I think it's just southwest of the, of the West Bank, you can see, to this day, massive craters in the ground full of water called Solomon's Pools. They were the pools that he excavated in order to water his forests. All right, that was his garden. I've got a, 13, I've got a house that took 150,000 men 13 years, and then I've got my forests on the back, 900 acres. All right, that's... That's what he's doing. That's his, that's his possessions. So I'm sure he's really impressed by your five bedrooms and the, and, the, and, the, and the car that you just bought, right? The, 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 the top model. But he's got a forest and he's got a palace and he's got a thousand women, all right? Verse 7. I love you guys. Just want to, just want to let you know. I bought male and female slaves, and had slaves who were born in my house. I also had possessions of herds and flocks, more, more, more than anyone who had been before me in Jerusalem. So not only does he have all of this stuff, not only is he throwing all of these parties, not only is he having all of this sex and pleasure, but he's also getting everything done for him. I've got male servants, I've got female servants. Great possessions. I've got herds, I've got flocks, and I've got more of this stuff than anyone's ever had. He's living the ultimate 
life of ease. Hugh Hefner boasts, I don't do dinner parties, I eat dinner in bed. Solomon says, I've got slaves and the slaves of slaves and their slaves to do everything that my heart desires. And then he says, verse 8, I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of men. There's this funny little uh, passage in 2 Chronicles where it comments on this little footnote to Solomon's riches. Verse 20, 2 Chronicles 9.20, All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon, that's his house, the house of the forest of Lebanon, were of pure gold. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. So you can imagine Solomon coming around to your house, you've got this opportunity to entertain the king, you know, you're pretty wealthy because Israel's doing well in this time, and he's come around and you want to offer him a drink and all you've got is the pure silver goblet that your grandmother's grandmother's grandmother you know, handed down through the years. Antiques Roadshow's just come through, valued it at 10,000 shekels and you're kind of shaking, giving it to him and he's like, really? Silver? I don't do silver. <laughs> I don't do silver. Pure gold is all I drink out of. Silver is not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. He has gold. He has, in addition to gold, singers, both men and women. So any, any of the bands that are kind of doing well in the Jerusalem scene in the day, you know, like he's not downloading He's not downloading, he's not going on iTunes, he's not picking up the, the, the latest album, he's buying the band, alright? You might download, he's buying the band. I got singers, men and women, and I bought them, and I brought them to my house, and they just sang for me. I didn't have to press, shuffle, or repeat, they just kept singing, and singing, and singing, and while they sang, I had many concubines, and they weren't just the... The reject shop concubines, they weren't the target concubines, they were the delight of the children of men. That is, just the pick. I just come around to your house, if your daughters are good, I'll take them. Right? I'll send my emissaries out through the nations. Got this thing for Asian girls now. Get them in. Right? I don't mean to be crass, that's his life. That's his life. He is the king, he's the king of, of, of irrevocable, irrepressible wealth. And he set himself a task and a test and an experiment and he will see it through in every way possible. And so he's got pleasures, he's got possessions, and he's got plaudits. In verse 9 he says, after all of that, so I became great. I see him standing on an a rocky outcrop. I became great and, and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem and all my wisdom remained with me. 
So I had all of this stuff. I was the greatest thing that anyone had ever known. And I still had the wisdom to govern well. So most people, when they get into leadership and they go after hedonistic ways, they're tyrannical leaders, they're oppressors, they're dictators, and they end up uh, like Hitler, dead in a gutter on fire, all right? Or, or, or Putin looking like an idiot. This guy goes after his own pleasure in every possible way, and everyone thinks he's great. And his wisdom stays with him. He is unsurpassable. It doesn't, it doesn't end that well, but right now, he is the bee's knees, all right? He is great, great, greater than anyone else, better than all the others who have been before me. And so, again, I, d- I just, I just want to sit down with you and I want to say, Like respect, I guess, for the entrepreneurialism that's led you here. Not sure about the means by which you've done it, but this guy just owns you. This guy just owns you, man. In 2010, three of his playmates out of the four that were living with him at the time, because he'd gone through a few marriages and then he decided, I'm not going to get married anymore. I'm just going to have playmates live with me and, and pleasure me. And so he had four living with him in 2010, Three of them just decided together that they would leave. And so what did they do? They left. They just left. And he could do nothing about it. Not so with Solomon. Concubines, don't leave. His wives, don't leave. His treasures, his riches, don't fade. He is unsurpassable by Hugh Hefner or anyone else, any of these little figures that we might hold up as some kind of example of a hedonistic conqueror of our day. And so he goes through all of this. He puts this, this, this life to the test. He, he, he conducts this awesome, incredible, unimaginable experiment in pleasure. And then he gets to verse 10. And I wonder if this... I wonder if this If you grew up in church, I wonder if this surprises you. Verse 10. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. What he says is, I did all of this, and it was pleasurable. Right? The reward for doing all of that work was pleasure. I wonder if that surprises you because if you grew up in church like I did, the message I got through youth group especially was don't pursue those things because they're not pleasurable anyway, right? Sex will be more pleasurable if you wait till you're married or life will be more pleasurable if you don't get drunk and do drugs and it's just a lie, right? Those things are really pleasurable, right? Pleasure, it turns out, is pleasurable. It's true. Solomon does all of this in all of these ways, and he says at the end, well, I've got to tell you, it was pleasurable. For all of this that I did, I got pleasure. Indulging myself in pleasure was pleasurable. Are you with me? 
You tracking with this? Right. So devoting all of your resources to pleasure and possessions and plaudits will, will result in a harvest of pleasure. So if that's your aim, if your aim is to experience pleasure in this life, then by all means, get after it. But you're going to need more resources than you have right now if you're going to do what he just did. So, so it's going to take a while, but by all means, if pleasure is the end game, this life's pleasures is what you're all about, then get after it, Solomon says. Get after it. And there's a reason, I think, that pleasure has become the, the ultimate end goal of our time, of our generation. That the experience of pleasure, whether you define it as happiness or joy or just you know, this worldly pleasure, sexual pleasure or otherwise, pleasure in possessions, pleasure in family, the reason that those things have become so intensely important to us is because God made us that way. Alright? God made us that way. God made us to be pleasure seekers. If you don't believe me, go back to Genesis 1 and 2. See how God created the world. Everything's perfect. There's one man, one woman, a garden, and they're naked. Alright? That's a, a design for pleasure right there. It wasn't that Adam and Eve got kind of they were playing hide and seek or wrestling, and then suddenly, uh, 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 whoa, what, what's this new thing that God didn't invent that we just came across? If you pardon the pun. Apologies. Apologies. I need more sleep. Apologies. It wasn't as if God didn't invent sex. It wasn't as if God didn't invent the greater pleasures and Adam and Eve discovered them somehow after the fall. God invented these things. The pleasure that you receive when you have sex. The pleasure that you receive when you drink wine. Every pleasure that you can conceive of was created by God and ordained by God. And He didn't just create pleasures, He created us to be pleasure seekers. Now, before you leave, right? Granted, this has been ruined almost, at least very much fractured by the fall, by sin. Right? I, I mean, I've been around long enough to have counseled drug addicts and alcoholics and those who have been abused sexually over and over and over again, enough to make me cry on demand. So I'm not saying sin hasn't, hasn't broken those things, but I'm saying God created those things and He didn't just create the pleasure, He created us to be pleasure Seekers, let me, let me get someone to speak for me. Blaise Pascal um, is someone who's had a great influence on me. If you don't know who he is, you should know who he is because he's one of the greatest minds that's ever lived. Um, he was a, a mathematician, come philosopher, come theologian, who pretty much redefined how we think in the modern world. He was a Christian and he died when he was 39, but if he hadn't have died, he probably would have written the greatest theological work of all time. The notes that he was putting together for that work are called the Ponces, and that's a book you can get 
in Penguin or whatever else. It's, it's become a classic, and it's a work of kind of his notes that were going towards that book uh, before he died. He, he also invented the first ever public transport. He invented the calculator. Um, this is all 16th century, all right? So this guy's, again, out of our league. This is what he says about happiness or pleasure. Listen, uh, uh, and, and listen, whenever someone's speaking to me uh, from the front and I start reading a quote, I tune out. So I don't want you to do this because th- this is really important, all right? So j- just look at me while I read this. This is from the uh, 148th Ponce. He says, All men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. However different the means they may employ, they all strive towards this goal. The reason why some go to war and some do not is the same desire in both, but interpreted in two different ways. The will never takes the least step except to that end. This is the motive of every act of every man, including those who go and hang themselves. All right? So it's this pursuit of happiness, this pursuit of pleasure that leads everyone to do everything they do. I was just uh, getting exasperated yesterday with Judah, our nine-month-old, nearly ten-month-old. He was being exasperating because he just, was go- he just wanted what he wanted, right? And nothing would, would sate him. Right? Nothing would satisfy him. I kept picking stuff up and giving it to him, and he'd just be like, whatever, and then cry, and then I'd give him something else, whatever. And, right? He'd do that thing that kids do, and I was like, what is wrong with you? I'm giving you stuff. And then I, then I thought, and this is the Spirit of God, gave me this thought, you are exactly the same as him. Nothing has changed. When you're a ton-month-old, you're doing the same thing, and now you're 33, and you're doing the same thing. You are pursuing your pleasures it, then it was through crying and whinging like a baby, and now it's doing the same thing in more socially acceptable ways. And that, Pascal says, is all of us. It's all of us. Everyone seeks their happiness. Now, here's the issue, right? Here's the issue. Here's what you pro- probably were hoping that I would get to, right? If, you, if, you're, if you're a Christian. The issue is that all of that pleasure-pursuing toil that Solomon invested in, and all of it that we invest in, is ultimately, ultimately unsatisfying. And the reason it's ultimately unsatisfying, Blaise Pascal says in the next, in the next paragraph, is this. He says, What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim, but that there was once in man a true happiness, this is going back to the garden, there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain, it's the word vanity, right throughout Ecclesiastes, right? This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there to help he cannot find in those that are there, though none can help. Since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God Himself. If you ever heard someone say that everyone's got a God-shaped hole in their heart or whatever, that's, they got that from this guy. What he's saying is, at one point, when everything was perfect at the beginning, we knew happiness. And then it was 
broken. And ever since then, we've been trying to get it back. And we try and get it back through the use of all kinds of things and people and, and objects and possessions and experiences. We're trying to get it back. But nothing can give it back to us because the only thing that can fit in that space is an immutable, infinite God. And so life just becomes this treadmill, this treadmill trying to get to a destination that we're never going to get. We're never going to get there. And so Solomon says in verse 11, Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity. That's Pascal's word as well. All was vain and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Again, Solomon's going to say, as far as this life goes, under the sun, right? This life of flesh and blood, of material and possessions and pleasures and plaudits, as far as this life goes, there's nothing that can be gained. There's nothing that can satisfy. I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I've had a thousand women. I've got a huge house. I've got, that elsewhere in 1 Kings, I think, or 2 Chronicles, it says he's got 1,500 chariots. That's like the, the, the top model car of the day. He's got tons of them. Pleasures and possessions. Everyone thinks he's the greatest thing ever. He surpassed his dad, David. He surpassed everyone. And he comes to the end of his experiment and says, God damn it. God has damned my pursuit of pleasure. He damned it in response to the sin of Adam and Eve. He damned it all and said, you will never find satisfaction there. You will never be truly happy there. The only thing that can fill that void is that immutable and infinite object. Can't have a sermon without something from C.S. Lewis. So let me read you this quote. Some of you know this. Um, this is a, an essay, or a, really it was a sermon called The Weight of Glory. If you don't own The Weight of Glory, you really need to get it. You can get it for free, PDF. All right, The Weight of Glory Um, This is something he preached in 1941, and he said this. He's talking about self-denial and unselfishness and that kind of thing. He says, the the New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. Stay with me, this is really important. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ... And, or, or, or you might say, but, nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an, an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant, Immanuel Kant, and the Stoics, and is no part of the Christian faith. 
I'm going to deny myself because it's the right thing to do and I don't care if I get rewarded. He says, that's not Christian. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. C.S. Lewis agrees. He says, God has made us not just to pursue pleasure, pleasure, but to find ultimate pleasure in Him. To spend our lives pursuing our pleasures. I want pleasure. I want pleasure. And it's not just, you know, not just doing the right thing and I don't care if I get pleasure out of it, but no, I want pleasure. I want to be pleasured forever. He says, God looks at us and sees how much we want pleasure and says, not enough. Your desires aren't too strong. That's not what leads you to porn and drunkenness and, and going into the hole on your mortgage. It's not that your desires are too strong. It's that they're too weak. You're settling for those things. You're settling for sex and drink and ambition. You're settling for climbing the ladder corporately. You're settling for those paltry homes when infinite joy is offered you. Your desires aren't too strong, they're too weak. And then he gives us this beautiful illustration. He says, we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. You're like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because we cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleased. We're far too easily pleasured. God doesn't think your desires are too strong. He thinks they're weak. He's wondering why you're settling for all of these Poultry, this worldly, under the sun, chasing after the wind pleasures. He's wondering why you're making mud pies when he's trying to show you the beach. So if if you've ever come across Christianity and thought, and I wouldn't blame you if you thought this, but thought that what we're about is killing pleasure... And if you'll ever imagine God in heaven with a stick just bashing people who are having fun, like some kind of cosmic killjoy, repent of that. We need to repent of that. That's not Christianity. Christianity is infinite pleasure and the pursuit of infinite pleasure. And not doing it because kind of, I have to and I don't care if I get rewarded or not. No, seeking the rewards. The book of Hebrews, I think it's chapter 10, at the end of chapter 10 it says, something like, uh, those who want to please God must do two things. First, believe that He exists and then believe that He is the rewarder of those who seek after Him. If you want to please God, Don't just believe in Him, but believe that He's going to reward you 
He's going to pleasure you. Infinite pleasures. Infinitely given. Not just in the life to come, but even now. See, Solomon spent this life going after this life's pleasures and found that they were meaningless because they came to nothing. He couldn't be satisfied. What I'm saying is we can go after eternal pleasures in this life and experience the pleasure of it now. Not to be going around like some kind of puritanical Christian beating yourself with rods because you thought about the wrong thing once, but enjoying the gospel of grace that is offered to you every day, a free unmitigated offer of forgiveness and reconciliation and adoption that goes from now into eternity and to live every day enjoying the pleasures that God freely rains down on you. Every good thing, James says, comes from our Father, the Father of lights. Every good gift. So start enjoying it. Start enjoying it. Remember in our John series, we've just gone through it. In John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at a well in Samaria. I wasn't here for the message. I think Jimmy did it or it might have been you, Pete. Pete did it. All right. Um, Jesus meets a woman at a well. She's a Samaritan woman. She's had heaps of men. She's onto her fifth guy and he's not even her husband. She's there alone because she's been shunned by the people around her. She's pursuing pleasure just like all of us do, but she's just finding dead ends, guys who don't treat her well, guys who use her for a body, um, and she's finding herself shunned socially. Jesus meets her. He speaks to her, which in itself was an incredible grace. He, He sits with her. He drinks water with her. And then he says to her, as a paraphrase, stop going after the water from this well. Come to me and I'll give you living water and you'll never be thirsty again. Every time we pursue something this worldly, this pitiful little, this worldly pleasure, every time you give in and you do look at porn on your computer and you're just trying to slake your thirst with something, and then it turns out that it turns to sand in your mouth and there's no satisfaction, there's only guilt and maybe the desire to want to do it some way down the track when you get over the guilt and you go through that process of habitually trying to slake your thirst with the sandy, the sandy wells of this life. Jesus wants to come to you this morning and say, come to me and I will give you water and you'll never be thirsty again. He says it again in the book of Revelation. He says, come to me. Come to me. Drink from me. I'll give you drink. I'll give you food without price that will never leave you hungry or thirsty again. And so if you're here this morning and you're just exhausted trying to satisfy yourself with what Isaiah calls the bread that perishes, Right, the bread that perishes, the water that evaporates. If you're sick and tired of being on the treadmill that Solomon was on, trying to satisfy yourself 
under the sun, then please come to Jesus today. I tell you what, I've spent time this week in the midst of all kinds of sufferings and all kinds of tribulations. I've spent time this week utterly thrilling, utterly pulsating, shining, shivering with joy. The joy of the Lord. It comes from knowing Jesus. Like, that's happened to me this week. It's not just when Jesus comes back and makes everything okay. It's now. It's now. And suddenly, if you can capture this, sitting down with your kids and your wife at the table becomes an incredible experience of worship as you praise God for His good gifts. Not thinking about, I wish we were in a bigger house than this. I wish this was better steak than this. Right? Not trying to get the next level, but enjoying the abundance of what gives us now, God gives us now as a shadow and a foretaste of that which is to come. So you might be sitting here thinking, oh, that's great, and I was planning on stopping now, but I, just, I, I, I can't. Because you can't go out of here today not knowing what to do. All of this might be true, right? Most people outside of the church would probably agree with this to an extent. I googled um, possessions on Instagram, and all of the photos that came up were possessions aren't everything and you can't buy love and all, all of these platitudes, right? But everyone who's posting that is going after those things all through every part of their lives, seeking after possessions and riches and pleasures. So we might say that, but we don't do that. So you might be here this morning thinking, yes and amen, but how do you actually do that? I don't know. It's probably something we have to figure out together as a family over the next 25, 30 years. I'd love to do that with you. But here's a couple of thoughts. When it comes to sex, when it comes to pleasure, physical pleasure, then how about we decide today, you with your uh, wife or husband, or if you're not yet married, aspirationally for when that day comes, God willing, how about you decide that you will have God's approach to sex and pleasure? You will, you will agree that God created it. He knows how it works best. And you'll start investing in living out those, those, that, that sexual life that he has given you by his grace in the way that he has ordained it. That doesn't mean chastity belts and singing hymns. All right, That means enjoying the wife of your youth, as Solomon says in Song of Songs. Song of Songs enjoying her in the context that God has ordained one man, one woman in a marriage covenant for life. Enjoyment. Free and full and frequent enjoyment. That's going to mean you don't look at porn. That's going to mean you don't fantasize about other people. That's going to mean you don't have sex outside of that covenant that God has set. All of these things will diminish your joy. So if you want full joy, if you want the most pleasure you can get from sex, then start doing it God's way. We can talk more about that some other time. Pleasure, possessions. Start having God's mind when it comes to possessions. If you have an eternal perspective that your life on earth is here and that eternity stretches out for forever, the dot 
and the line that never finishes, you will start living a joyful life in regard to your possessions. Because you'll be content. You'll see everything you have as a blessing from God. You'll stop looking at what everyone else has. The better model, the, 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 the better upgrade, the prettier wife or whatever it is. And you'll start thanking God for what He's given you and you'll enjoy it. It'll become a source of worship for you. I got this morning into my early 90s Corolla uh, that's falling to bits and I was able to say, thank you God for this Corolla. Why? Because I've spent the last year walking to church and then my godmother gave me this car and even that piece of junk can become a source of worship. Thank you God. You gave me this. I love this. This is helpful to me. It's a gift from you. Happiness, pleasure, joy follows the man or woman who is contented with what God has given them. It will also happen in regards to possessions if you just start giving them away. Randy Alcorn said, the only antidote for greed is generosity. That's the truth. Write that down. Tweet that out. The only antidote for greed is generosity. You can't keep being a greedy person that all of us are if you start being generous. It's the antidote. Start giving your stuff away. Pleasures, possessions, plaudits, the antidote for plaudits, just seeing ourselves in our right place. Paul says, you remember, let no one think of themselves more highly as they ought. We ought to see ourselves in relationship to who God is and what He's done. You'll be put in your place very quickly, not just by contrasting your life to Solomon's, but contrasting your life to the Lord Jesus. He's the only perfect man. He's the only man worthy of our worship. He's the only great man. He's the only man who could be all of the things that we have not and cannot be. And so it makes very little sense to pour all of your toil into becoming the best you can be, having your best life now, accumulating for yourselves plaudits and congratulations and pats on the back when you start seeing yourself in your relation to who Jesus is. King, Lord, God, Christ. All of it's easy to do. Most of it is forgotten by the time you get to the car park. So what we need to do is pray. Pray earnestly. Add your prayers to mine. Pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us, convict us, change us. And not only now, but tomorrow and the next day. That he would use people in this church to walk alongside us and encourage us and convict us. Pray for us. This is going to be a community project. Let's pray. Father, this is a community project starting with the community of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. We need your help. We need you to lead us in these paths that you've laid out for us this morning. We're always going to be like Solomon on the small scale. We're always going to be like a less brash, less proud, less arrogant Hugh Hefner. We're always going to tend towards discontentedness 
We're always going to tend towards striving for things under the sun, even though we know that it's a chasing after the wind. And so we need your help. We need your spirit really, 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 Lord. We need your spirit to convict us now, to, to break us down, to, to point out some of our idols so that we can burn them, to point out some of our, our ways of thinking, our habits, our, our, our ways of being, that, that, are, that are the ways of this world that are contained by life under the sun. Please, Lord, help us to shed them by your grace and to rather seek the fullness of joy that you want for us. Forgive us for being half-hearted creatures. Forgive us for settling for little pleasures. Make us hedonists, Lord. Make us hedonists who are passionate about pursuing our pleasures. Infinite pleasures that can only be found in Jesus. And we pray that as we do that, Jesus, you would redeem so many of this life's pleasures that we have turned into idols, that you would redeem sexual pleasure in our experience that you would redeem the pleasure of possessions, that you would redeem the pleasure of plaudits and applause and accomplishments, Lord, that you would redeem those things so that we might do all of them to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Lord, make that, make that true for us, that whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, that we might do it to your glory for our pleasure. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to the Anglican Church Caroline Springs podcast. For more information, go to taccs.org.au.